Welcome to the United States of Health blog podcast. I'm Rebecca Cooney. On April 8, 2017, The Lancet publishes a new series called America, Equity and Equality in Health. There are some projects that as they come to life can take on a special significance. As the North American executive editor here in New York City, as well as the handling editor of this exceptional series of papers, I have had the privilege of working with the authors for the last two years as the papers developed. While the manuscripts went through peer review and revisions evolving into the series, health in the U.S. and the healthcare system has been changing as well, but largely in a negative way. During this process, some notable crises have arisen. We've seen the explosion of the opioid epidemic, and for the first time in decades, life expectancy in the U.S. has actually gone down. Insurance coverage and pharmaceutical costs have continued to rise. The forces of racism and poverty take a terrible toll. Healthcare itself has become extremely politicized, and the future of the Affordable Care Act remains unclear. Simply put, American health is in peril. In this new series, five papers chronicle some of the conditions and challenges that contribute to the inequity and inequality in health that many Americans experience. In in an accompanying series of podcasts, one for each paper, my colleague Aaron Van Dorn and I will be speaking with the lead authors to talk about the main messages and where the biggest issues lie, but also where there are opportunities to improve. On behalf of The Lancet, thanks for listening. In this first podcast, we'll hear from series author Sam Dickman. The paper that you and your co-authors have written is Inequality and the Healthcare System in the USA, and it is the first paper in a new Lancet series called America, Equity, and Equality in Health. And it really serves to sort of tee up the topics of the other four papers, but it also in and of itself covers a, a lot of ground and a lot of important aspects about the healthcare system, which is really no small task. So before we kind of get into some of the key messages of the papers, what I thought would be interesting is to get a little bit of background about you as an author and how you sort of thought about the narrative that you wanted to build for this paper and really what is the starting point or lens that you were using to look at the U.S. healthcare system. I think the way I came to it was in medical school and in residency now just we're confronted so often with the inequalities in health outcomes and obviously a lot of that is just random chance as someone might get cancer and and someone else might not. But we know that there's actually a a real predictability to this. And there's also been a lot more focus on inequality in health recently. We wanted to look at kind of what the drivers of that inequality. And we know that, you know, a lot of it happens outside the healthcare system. But the healthcare system is obviously a big, important player as well. And so we wanted to look at kind of what was special about the U.S. healthcare system that might be affecting health outcomes and inequality. In particular, we know that the U.S. compared to other wealthy countries just has a much more like market-oriented healthcare system than many other places. And that ends up meaning that it's more of a of a commodity. That's obviously a trend that extends to other sectors of the U.S. economy, but that's definitely true in healthcare. So what that means is that wealthier Americans have better access to medical services and that potentially that would lead to some of the health inequalities that we know are quite prevalent here. So that's kind of how we thought about the paper. I think the background and motivation was a real concern with, with inequality more broadly. And I think you know, the Great Recession, the Occupy Wall Street movement, for sure, just like brought to the forefront for a lot of Americans the fact that 
that our economy is so lopsided and that wealthy Americans have increasingly just gained access and power in this country in a way that the poor and middle class haven't. Between the Great Recession, Occupy Wall Street, there's just been a lot more attention to that. And we wanted to, to figure out how that was affecting the healthcare system. And what I think is so interesting, just even going back in time two years when we originally started talking about the series and how there really does seem to be just this ratcheting up of attention and in general, what is going on? What are the, the drivers of the gaps of equity and inequality in our healthcare system? Let's talk about some of the other pieces. We've touched a little bit on how healthcare spending is much higher compared to other developed countries. What are some other aspects? that are driving the equity and equality issues that we're seeing? The first thing, when when we think about kind of differences in health outcomes, the first thing is to be able to describe them. And, and there we have really good data. There was a, a great paper that came out last year by an economist at Stanford, Raj Chetty, who showed that the poorest Americans now have an average life expectancy that's more than 10 years shorter than the wealthiest Americans. And, and we know that that gap is growing. Knowing what the data are is the first step. I think the next is realizing that medical services are really just one piece of the puzzle, that actually a lot of factors beyond medical care have important impact on health. We know that people who have lower incomes are more likely to live in unsafe housing or they're more likely to be homeless or to be forced from their homes because they can't pay rent. Lots of other things, you know, they're more likely to be stressed about finances and safety and that stress itself has harmful health effects. They're less likely to have good access to healthy food, to healthy exercise, recreation opportunities. So those are all things that are actually like outside the healthcare system per se, but that have important impacts. All that said, you know, I don't think healthcare providers are off the hook at all because the systems that we have, we know that they treat different groups of patients quite differently. We know that the poor who, whether or not they have insurance, they have a lot more trouble getting to a primary care doctor for a number of reasons. And then when they need to see specialists too, we know that they're actually much less likely to be able to do that. We know, for example, that poor children who are covered by Medicaid, which the public insurance program that covers low-income Americans, they're much less likely to get an appointment with an orthopedic specialist if they have a broken arm than a child in a similar kind of health situation but who has private insurance and has a higher income. Those are important things within the healthcare system that are driving differences in health outcomes. One other thing is about quality of care. So clearly we know that access is much better if you have better insurance and if you have a higher income, and that's something that is quite particular to the U.S. But in terms of quality, I think there's also some research that shows that the quality of care that the poor and racial and ethnic minorities get may be better, may be worse. Actually, that data is pretty mixed for income, it seems to be more true for racial minorities who tend to get care at hospitals that, that tend to have worse outcomes. That's kind of another side of it because healthcare obviously is the product of both being able to get to see a provider as well as going to a provider that's actually going to be able to, to help.
So you mentioned Medicaid, and I think that it's very difficult to have any sort of conversation right now about the U.S. healthcare system where we don't also have to talk about the financing aspect of it, and certainly that there are these you know very important aspects of trying to improve equity in the actual care, but again, it kind of comes back to being able to provide coverage. And the conversation, I feel like, is often a little bit disjointed when it comes to this describing what the options are. And because we do have a lot of international listeners, I thought it'd be really nice to just kind of put side by side two of kind of the major coverage schemes, which are the Medicaid program, which is for lower income Americans, but then also to talk a little bit about private insurance and some of the the pitfalls of both of those systems, which you allude to in the paper. And I thought it'd be really nice to just kind of call out a couple of the problems that we have currently with these two kind of major schemes of coverage. The intricacies and complexities of the U.S. healthcare system are enough to make your head spin. And even for someone who lives here, who works in healthcare, who does research on the healthcare system, it's complicated. I'll try to just do a, an overview here. The Medicaid system is run by the states, so there's a lot of state-to-state differences. However, the general picture is that if you're an adult or a child, actually, and you have an income below about 140% of the federal poverty level. In other words, if you're poor or you're you're very close to the poverty line, then in about two-thirds of states, you're eligible for Medicaid. And Medicaid is public insurance coverage that historically has had very low cost sharing. In other words, it's something that you're eligible for and you don't have to pay very much for, if anything, to go to the doctor and there are low or no premiums. So that seems to be changing a little bit. All of that sounds great if you're a low-income American, but there are a couple big caveats there. One is that in about a third of the states, eligibility is much more restrictive that unless you're a mother of a young child or unless your income is kind of extraordinarily low, 20%, 30% of the federal poverty level, you're not eligible for Medicaid. And so that means that in, in at least a third of states, the poor are just very likely to be uninsured. The other big caveat with the Medicaid program is that the reimbursement rates it provides are, are much lower than in private insurance. And so that means that a lot of hospitals and doctor's offices just won't accept patients who are on Medicaid. And so if you have insurance, but you can't find a doctor who will accept it, that insurance ends up being pretty much worthless. Those are the kind of issues with Medicaid, which has actually expanded pretty dramatically and overall is is great for people who have access to it. We know that it improves outcomes and it seems to decrease mortality rates for people who, who are able to gain access to it. So private insurance is, is different. In, in the U.S., most people with private insurance get it through their employer. They end up paying a certain amount each month or each year for that insurance and their employer also kicks in a good amount. And that's because of tax preferences for employers to give their employees health insurance. Typically with private insurance, there are a lot more premium costs, and then there's also a lot more cost sharing. In other words, if you're prescribed a medicine, you're going to end up paying more for that medicine, even if your insurance covers part of it. Similarly, every time you go to the doctor, you have to pay a copay of you know, $25 or $50. If you go to the emergency room, you might have to pay more. There are often deductibles. So aside from 
maybe a primary care visit once a year, if you end up needing more specialty care or just more care in general, you may have to pay everything up to a, a certain deductible. And those deductibles in private insurance plans have really risen. If you've got a $3,000 deductible and you're making $30,000 a year, that actually is a, a huge chunk of your income before your insurance really kicks in at all. So the issues in private insurance market in terms of access are quite different, but both Medicaid and private insurance Neither one of them are kind of full comprehensive coverage without cost sharing the way it is in many other countries. Again, I think that is one of the really powerful messages to come out of both your paper and the series in general is that there are just these enormous financial hardships being experienced both by people at the lowest end of the economic spectrum, but also that the middle class is really seeing a bulk of the the squeeze as insurance becomes for many impossible to use because of the financial hardships that come along with that. And, you know, the Affordable Care Act for so much that it did to kind of stave off off the number of bankruptcies from medical expenses, we now seem to be moving away from those sort of first gains that we saw, and that without some major changes, that this is going to continue to be a you know a really difficult challenge for people. So I'd like to go from there. So kind of touching on that, we've gotten a little bit of the lay of the land of kind of what the financial workings are, a little bit of the social aspects that are kind of playing into this, but to get prescriptive a little bit. And given all of this background, the paper as well as the series makes a pretty strong case for the need for some form of universal health coverage. Tell us about what your conclusions are that you've drawn from being part of this paper and part of the series. I think that's true. And I think you know, we look at it from a historical perspective and, and also an international perspective. In a lot of countries, there's been a push for universal health coverage, but that hasn't been true in the U.S. And I think that's because just historically, there's been a real strong preference here for free market-based approaches to just how we distribute like all goods and services, and that that has extended not just to kind of traditional commodities, but as well as social services and healthcare in particular. And so... Whereas a lot of our peer countries have implemented tax finance national health programs or health insurance programs that give everyone more or less equal access to care, that's just never been the case in the U.S. And, you know, there have been big pushes in that direction. So Medicaid and Medicare were introduced in the 1960s. And before that, if you were poor, if you were elderly and had high medical bills, you were just out of luck unless you happened to have a, a lot of savings. Medicare and Medicaid really have changed that for the better, but they've never been universal coverage programs. They've always applied to subpopulations. So when we think about universal insurance, we can look at it from a practical perspective and see that they just work better. They're better designed programs. They're more cost effective for a number of reasons. Insurance programs that are public and, and that are large can negotiate drug prices. They can negotiate with hospitals. They can make sure that the people that they're covered are getting a good deal and then they're not getting charged too much. And that's something that we know happens a lot in the U.S. They also are, are way more efficient because, you know, in the U.S. we just spend so much time and money on paperwork. And it's not just like a little bit. It's like more than 10% of all our healthcare dollars are just spent on kind of clerks and billing and these things that would be eliminated, or if not eliminated, at least vastly decreased if there were just a, an efficient single-payer kind of system. For all those reasons, practically, a universal healthcare system would work better. But I think there's also 
a moral dimension to this. I think most people feel like, especially in a wealthy country like the U.S., everyone should be able to get some degree of high-quality medical care and that we just feel that it's, it's wrong for people to end up broke because they got sick. And yet we know that that happens all the time here. It happens all the time. And I had a patient last week who, who literally, when I told her that I was going to prescribe a medicine that I thought would really benefit her uh, for her heart failure, and then we calculated how much it would cost her each month, she said, okay, I, ca- I can do that. I'll just cut down on my groceries. That like feels, it feels so bad. It feels so bad. And I think in the States, healthcare providers, we, we actually end up kind of getting used to it or just accepting it. But it's actually like really depressing and sad. And, you know, you tell people who live in Canada, who live in France and the UK, and, and you know, that kind of situation is like unheard of. They're, they're really shocked and we should be too. So I think there's a practical side to it, an efficiency side, but there's also a moral dimension that there's a better way to do this and there's a more just way to do it. I think you have done an amazing job, a super valuable paper within just an extraordinary series. And, and we are also very excited for the launch of this as well. And and I thank you for taking the time to chat with us a little bit more about it. And, and we will continue to track this very closely. So thanks again. Yeah, well, thanks so much, Beck. The United States of Health blog podcast is written and produced by Rebecca Cooney and Aaron Van Dorn in the New York office of The Lancet. Theme music taken from Seeker by Kai Engel. To listen to more podcasts, check out usa.thelancet.com.